Let us pray. Lord, we give you great thanks for the gift of marriage. In it has exhibited uh, the union and the mystery between Christ and His church. And so, Lord, we pray that um, we would uh, see what marriage is all about. And, Lord, that we might uh, be a witness for your great grace and love to this broken and fallen world. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple years ago, uh, actually it wasn't even that long ago, it was about a year ago, and I know that they did a follow-up in April of um, this year, just a couple months ago. NPR's All Things Considered did a huge series on uh, a phenomenon that is happening in America uh, about cohabitating uh, before marriage. And what really stuck with me is they went and visited people because statistics will tell you that 50% of Americans who are of marrying age uh, have actually cohabitated with someone romantically uh, before they were married in, in our day and age. So that's a lot of people. And in fact, right now, 70% of all couples um, that get married cohabitated before they, they got married. So, uh, but what struck me about this uh, interview was that this lady uh, that they were interviewing who is about 27, 28 years old, and uh, she'd been living with the same guy for about five or six years. They had two children together. And uh, they asked her, uh, you know, why is it that even after two children, you're, you're reluctant, you and your friend are, are reluctant to get married? And uh, baby's daddy. And, and why, are you, why are you reluctant to get married? And, and look, these are not, I mean, these are middle America sort of people that, that we grew up with. And um, her comment or her answer to the question was, well, you know, marriage is a really big commitment. <laughs> and I thought, you're right. <laughs> it is. Uh, and she's, she's right. It, it is a big commitment, but um, two kids, <laughs> it's a big commitment. Um, and also, uh, you know, one of the things that, that happens in our society that is really hard is that even if, if they decided to break up, it, it wouldn't be like breaking up with somebody in college. I mean, when you have kids, it, it has ramifications down through the years. So, uh, so it, it just struck me, and I thought, how in the world did we get to this place where people thought that kids outside of marriage was a good idea? Right? Because it used to be kids, really good idea, but probably in marriage, best idea. And, in fact, do you all know what the number one leading cause of poverty in the United States is? That's right. Children born into single-parent homes or divorce. That's the number one cause of poverty in the United States. And uh, under a previous administration, and even under the current administration, they've had, like, the National Fatherhood Initiative to try to get dads to, to play a more active role in the lives of children. Uh, because not for any religious or really moral reason, but just statistically, Kids tend to fare better when they have two parents in, in the household, a mom and a dad. And um, what uh, you also find, and I'll tell this to couples who come in for premarital counseling, because many of them uh, are cohabitating. And it's very funny. In my old parish, uh, here we have Robin Turner, who's a really wonderful uh, administrative assistant in pastoral care. She has them fill out all of the forms. But at St. Helena's, that was like the very first thing that we did. When, when you came in and sat down. And, uh, and it was, you know, what's your full name? It was a nice way to get to know people. Like, oh, Engelbert, that's an interesting middle name. 
and uh, you know what's your what's your birthday, where you know what's your occupation, and then I would get to seemingly an innocuous question: uh, Where do you live? What's your address? And at that point, at least seventy percent of the time, there was an awkward pause, and I would say, "Look, you're getting married. I'm really glad that you're here, and it will affect the way that we do premarital counseling." So. Just tell me what your address is. And, uh, and it's amazing the number of people who would still lie. And the best thing, the best part, <laughs> the best part is, is I had one couple who, um, who said, where do you live? They said, we live at 316 Brevard Street. Or the, the wife said that. And he's, now where do you live? And he said, 318 Brevard, three, no, it was 316B Brevard Street. I said, well, isn't that convenient? And, uh, and it turned out that her parents lived at 316, but she and her fiancé lived in the guest house, which was three. Anyway, but also uh, one time I called because I had to reschedule an appointment, and, uh, and they said that, you know, one lived. It turned out she gave Mama's address, and he gave their address, and, and I called. And, uh, and I got the answering machine, and it said, Hi, you've reached Bob and Jane. You can't get on the phone right now. And I thought, oh, jeez. I was like, okay. So that's an extra session on lying. <laughs> so what statistics will tell you is that if you co cohabitate before you get married, you're actually, it's upwards of you're 80% more likely to get divorced than couples that don't. Now that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because you sort of think, well, it's a nice test run. and it, But it, we're not actually going to get into that today. But it... Um, but it's a problem in the world in which we live in, and it's a problem on multiple levels. But the biggest problem is that our culture and uh, the world around us has lost any sense of what marriage means, even the church. So one of the things that um, the prayer book sets out when you go to any celebration and blessing of a marriage, and let's be honest, most of us really don't pay attention. Like I know, you know, I'm the efficient, and oftentimes I'm thinking, I wonder what they're going to serve at the reception. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So... Among other things, and 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 I'm thinking about stuff. But but in the preface to marriage, um, we actually say here here's what here's what marriage is. This is what it is. This is how the prayer book reads. It signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and His Church, and Holy Scripture commends it to be honored among all people. The union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind is intended by God for their mutual joy, for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity. And when it is God's will for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. And so the overarching thing is that what? It signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and his church. That's the overarching thing. And then within that, you have mutual joy, help and comfort, and children. Now, the old prayer book actually said that it was a way to manage the unruly affections of the individual. So, which means that fire is best in the fireplace. That's what that means. And, um, and, um, but, but that was removed. That was, that was a very Frank Limehouse thing to say, I think. Uh, so it was, he's pacing. He keeps pacing. Um, he's in the back. Uh, so, but the old prayer book, got rid of it, and I think that that was to the detriment because through the years, lots of people have had lots of ideas about what marriage is and what it's supposed to be, and uh, you know, for the longest time uh, back, if you watch any of these sort of 
shows about medieval knights and whatever. It, you know, it was like you would have, and up until recently, did you know that up until, I guess it was about a year or two ago, most of the world's marriages were arranged. I used to think, that is awful. Now that I have $3, I'm like, that is a great idea. That is the <laughs> best idea in the world. So, but if, uh, and it was, and it's still true with arranged marriages that, that for a lot of cultures, marriage was about establishing one standing in the community and in the society. It was more like a corporate merger, right? And so if you came from a good family, you wanted to be with a good family. And, you know, you had all kinds of uh, background information as to why those two individuals ought to come together. And then the Middle Ages came along, and the idea of marrying for romantic love came about, right? And we, we like those stories, don't we, where you know, uh, where instead of, uh, they've been done a thousand times over, where, in, you know, a, a movie that was big when I was growing up, The Princess Bride, you know, where with the, with the princess, instead of marrying the terrible old prince, which is what she was supposed to do, marries this sort of bandit pauper. Uh, why? Because she loves him and doesn't love that other guy. And then people uh, would... Um, get married uh, for, uh, and that, that, the middle age idea of getting married for romantic love pretty much continued until within the past 40 years, self-fulfillment has become the number one reason why people get married. Why do you want to marry this person? Because they make me happy. Because they make me happy. That's a very dangerous thing because one day they're not going to make you happy. Stanley Howells at Duke Divinity School said uh, he, anytime someone comes into his office and they say, I married the wrong person, his response is, you always marry the wrong person. <laughs> you always marry the wrong person. And Frank Limehouse, he told me that little thing that he said about he and Jane uh, in the sermon this morning, and, but I was going to use it this morning when he asked Jane, uh, Jane, why do you love me? She didn't have a response for him. And Frank was hurt by that and wanting to, you know, Surely there's something about me that, that makes you love me. And she said, Frank, I, I don't know. I don't know why I love you, but I do. And, uh, and as disheartening as that was for Frank, actually that was really good news because there was nothing that Frank, like if Jane had said, Frank, I love you for your luscious, thick hair. <laughs> what, what happens then, right? Uh, you know, um, yeah, and, and, and Frank is in, in, in really, really great shape. But, like, what if she said, you know, Frank, I love you for your runner's body. Well, what if one day he doesn't have a runner's body? You know, he's got a jogger's body or a sometimes walking body. I don't know. <laughs> I, or, even, or even, you know, I, I love you. You know, I just love the fact that they do little things for me and their sweet disposition. Well, some days you're going to be cranky, right? And so... What the world sees is that happiness determines everything. We talked about this when I had the class a couple weeks ago, that if happiness is paramount, then whatever makes you happy is okay. But actually, that's not one of the... I mean, mutual joy, sure, it go, marriage ought to be joyful, and it is joyful. And, um, but you start to talk about help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity, and you just kind of like, well... Because, look, it's a lot easier to help somebody in prosperity than it is adversity. I, you know, I love people when they're prosperous, when they're adverse. No, thank you. And then, um, and uh, of course, uh, children uh, being what they are. But more and more people now are 
either having children out of wedlock. And so at this point, what's the new statistic? Some outrageous number that, um, that over, just over half of children are born in the United States. Is that it? Is that, I'm looking at it right now. Well, it, people who are married um, ages 20 to 24 that, 80 per, or that are not married, uh, 80% of those babies are born out of wedlock. That's the statistic I'm looking at right now. Uh, this is a statistic from Ohio State. Approximately 60% of U.S. children living in mother-only families are impoverished compared to only 11% two-parent parents. The po- rate, rate of poverty is even higher amongst African-American single-parent fa- families in which two out of every three children are poor or impoverished, statistically speaking. So you have that, but you also now have people who are getting married who will say, I want nothing to do with children. I want to get married, but I don't want to have kids. And that's... That's a tough spot to be in because I'll ask them, I require and charge you both here in the presence of God that if either of you know any reason why you may not be married and united in marriage lawfully, which means like affinity or, you know, Andrew's got a wife in Haiti or something like that, uh, so that you can kind of move it out. But, but in accordance with God's word, you do now confess. It means like if marriage is about what we just talked about. And so the primary function of marriage, and uh, Tim Keller, who some of you all probably have heard, uh, has not the first person to say it, but he's big on this, is that marriage is primarily about gospel reenactment. St. Paul tells us the closest thing on earth that we have to show us how much God loves us is marriage. That's scary. That's really scary. And there are lots of ideas out there, and this is where the church has failed, I think, because there are lots of ideas out there about what Christian marriage is. And most people probably think, well, Christian marriage is having your act together, right? Being the dutiful husband, you know, Andrew, he's coaching Little League, and, and his wife is, uh, is playing the organ every Sunday afternoon at St. Martin's, and she makes these really great little cucumber sandwiches, and their children are so cute. And, uh, but little do you know that it's because we give them a half a Benadryl every Sunday before we come to church <laughs> that, um, that they're adorable, right? Um, that's not true. Um, <laughs> It's the middle one. It's the middle one that's the problem. Right? And so what it is that there's, a, there's this outward conformity of behavior that we think, well, that's what makes something Christian. But is that how Jesus loves us? Is that demonstrative of how Jesus loves his people? Does he look and say, I love you because you've got your act together. I love you because you're coaching Little League Baseball. I love you because those cucumber sandwiches just are out of the park. No, he looks at us while we are unlovely, while we were yet sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. And the problem with marrying for, for happiness is that it is impossible for any of us to keep our spouses happy for any amount of time. So one of the things that a lot of people don't notice is when I ask the couple, uh, so-and-so, will you have this man, will you have this woman to be your husband, to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love them, comfort them, honor and keep them in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? And the answer is, yeah, see, I'm, I'm hearing a couple, and for good reason. What do they say in the movies? I do. I do. What do we say? We say, I will. Why? Let's face it. No one ever looks better than they do on their wedding day. Never look better. You just aren't. And so when I said I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to, I'm going to use Lauren as an example because this is a good one. Um, when there we were, St. Michael's Church, Charleston, South Carolina, they throw open the doors, 
and here comes Lauren. And she is beautiful, and she is radiant, and she stands next to me. And if Ed Salmon, who married us, said, Andrew, do you love Lauren right now? I do. <laughs> I love her right now. Absolutely. Lauren, do you love it? I, and I probably could have said anything. I could have admitted to some terrible thing that I've done, and Lauren probably at that very moment would have said, I forgive you. I forgive you. And there were some, like, I mean, I, I broke a vase once that I never admitted to until now, and I probably, that would have been the time to, and it was because I was, it was because I was flipping it up in the air and trying to, never mind. So anyway, so it had stupid bamboo shoots in it. But anyway, you know the one I'm talking about, don't you? It's green. Um, it, it was. Um, anyway, I could have said that at that point in time, and she would, uh, do, I forgive you. I forgive you. But what happens two years later when Andrew doesn't look that way anymore? Andrew's been finding every meet and three in the southeastern United States that he can find, and the only time he runs is if somebody's chasing him. <laughs> and, you know, those little, you know, those little things that bother you before you get married, like one of three things could happen. They could actually improve. Like they could get better. They could stay the same, or they could get worse. And 99.9% of the time is it's the latter two, right? Very rarely do that. And, and so all of a sudden you get into marriage and those things are, are amplified and the person becomes unlovable, really unlovable. And that's why we say, I will. I will. I will love you. Because the vows that the couple takes are in the name of God, I take you to be my husband, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. Here's the thing. Uh, think back to when you were, were dating your spouse or when you dated anybody. It actually doesn't matter. When you dated anybody, um, you brought your A game to the table, didn't you? Like, even guys would look in the mirror and they would make sure that they looked all right and wonder, you know, did I wear this last time? And, you know, guys are holding open doors and, and pulling out chairs and, and the girl is trying to keep the conversation going and being witty and that goes on for maybe a month, month and a half and then you think, how much longer do I have to do this? Right? Because I'm not sure that I can keep this up. Right? And that's a scary moment in a relationship because what happens is the real you has to come. Not that the A game wasn't part of who you are, but it's not the whole package of who you are. So at some point, the real you is going to come out, and that is terrifying because one of two things happens. They see you as you really are, and they say, we're breaking up. Or they see you at your absolute worst, and they say, I love you. They don't go anywhere. They don't go anywhere. And if that ever married that person immediately, <laughs> pretty much. I did. Um, and I'll tell a story on me. It sounded so stupid. But Lauren, I had just gone up to Chicago where her dad was working, uh, was for business, to ask his permission to marry Lauren. And uh, we were flying. We were in O'Hare Airport on the way back. I just spent about, I spent $20 on one Wolfgang Puck ham and cheese sandwich. And I was furious about that. And I had all of these bags, and I was kind of like a government mule trying to navigate through the airport. I was upset about the ham and cheese sandwich, and I was in a really bad uh, mood. And we got on the airplane, and Lauren said something to me that really set me off. And on the middle of the airplane, as we're walking through the aisles, pretty close quarters, I just said, I'm not afraid of you anymore. 
and everybody just kind of turns like, like what, what kind of relationship do we have here? And um, But what had happened, what I was really trying to say was that there we had gotten to a point in our relationship where I wasn't afraid of those unlovely moments happening anymore. Like I knew that we weren't, we weren't going to go anywhere. That even in the midst of that, when, um, you know, it's funny, when um, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Bell Graham, uh, was interviewed, she had a, a really difficult life with her children because he, Dr. Graham, was on the road preaching all over the place, and they had, I think, five children, and uh, many of them were pretty unruly. And, um, you know, preacher's kids, vroom, vroom. And... Um, and so they, um, so she, they asked her the question, you know, uh, Mrs. Graham, did you ever think in, um, you know, while you were at home with the kids and your husband was on the road and the difficulties that that had on your marriage, did, have you, did you ever consider divorce? And Ruth Bell Graham took a moment and she sighed and she said, divorce, no. Murder, yes. <laughs> well... The real thing about marriage in these vows is you say, in the name of God, I take you for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. And what those vows really mean are for worse, for poor, and for sick. I mean, that's what they, that's what they really mean. Because it it's really easy to love somebody who is uh, rich, healthy, and lovely, and better. Right? That person, that's, that's wedding day Andrew. That person is, is somebody that anybody uh, would want uh, to be with. And so when the world looks at marriage and they think that it's simply about self-fulfillment and happiness, the church is often complicit in that. Uh, because what we don't tell is the reality that marriage is really, really hard. Now, the thing about it is, is that in marriage, you have two imperfect people who do love based on merit. Like, that's where our heart goes. I mean, it's, you know, I, I thought I was a pretty good guy, and then I got married, and I thought, Andrew, you're pretty selfish. And then I had kids, and it was like a whole new, I thought, oh, gosh, I really am in bad shape. But uh, it has a way of magnifying that. But so in a marriage... You have these two imperfect people who are called to love one another like Jesus loves, and you know that that's impossible. You know that that's impossible. So it's, it's an imperfect model, but it's still the closest thing that we have uh, on earth to showing the world the way that Jesus loves the church. And here is, I think, one of the things that, that, that we see. One of the things that I like to do on a wedding day during the service is when the bride comes down the aisle, most of the people in the church are looking at who? The bride, right? Rightfully so, right? She's, you know, the whole idea of a guy wearing a tuxedo is that, you know, he's sort of subdued in his wardrobe where, um, where the, um, the bride is supposed to shine. And what I have noticed is that the beauty and radiance of the bride is proportional to the gaze of the bridegroom. So the longer they lock eyes as she's walking down the aisle, the more she shines, the more radiant she is. There's a great old hymn that says, um, um, The bride eyes not her garments, but gazes upon the groom's face. She doesn't look at her own radiance that might be perceived as inherent, but the radiance that she has is from the love 
of the bridegroom. She loves because she has been loved much. And that is a picture of heaven that one day when we get up there, the angels will stand on tiptoe and gaze upon us, the bride of Christ, and we will be dazzling. Not because of anything that we've brought to the table, but because of Jesus' perfect gaze of love uh, toward us. And I mean, it's an amazing thing to have somebody gaze upon you and know that they know you to the bottom. They know you through and through and they love you. And they love you. And it's not about being able to have your act together. In fact, one of the things that I think makes a marriage Christian is being able to be vulnerable to the culture at large and say, look, marriage is really hard. It's very difficult. And the problems come up a lot. And yet, um, does my marriage reflect radical grace? Does it reflect forgiveness? Does it reflect uh, reconciliation? And sometimes it doesn't. Right? Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, because there are times when more often than not, again, my heart is predisposed to go into uh, the other direction. And what the world desperately needs, and one of the things that, that I notice about the prayers that we pray at the very end of the service when we pray for the couple, um, we pray that those who are married would have their vows strengthened, but we also pray for those in the congregation who have not been married, that it would be a witness to them, because those who are not in the congregation and not married look at that on a wedding day, and in their heart of hearts they say, that's what I want. That's, that's the kind of love uh, that I, I would like to see and that I want in my own life. And uh, that is a love that is only found in Jesus Christ. The only way that I would be able to love my wife imperfectly the way that I do is through Jesus Christ. And I don't mean like through the power of Jesus Christ, although that that's true, but I'm incapable of loving anybody in this world had Jesus not loved me the way that he loves me. And even in my own brokenness. And I think that that's part of it is being real and saying, look, I, I'm an incredibly broken person. And above all, what I need is the love of Jesus in order to be the person that God has called me to be and to love in the way that God has called me to be. And, and that is incredibly vulnerable, right? There's a, uh, a psychologist out named Meg Jay, and she's done a bunch of TED Talks. And what she has found is that so many people are coming into her office in their 20s, and they're just sort of aimless. You know, they kind of say, well, I'm thinking about going back and getting a master's in creative writing, and I don't know what to do. And, um, and, and for the longest time, she said, well, you know, you have, you have all the time in the world. You have all the time in the world. And then one day she, after seeing multiple uh, hundreds of patients probably over the years, she realized you don't have all the time in the world. 30 is not the new 20, right, which is what a lot of people think. And, uh, and in fact, um, a lot of people... Uh, you know, right now, my generation are getting much married much later in life for lots of reasons. One of those is education. Edu education prolongs adolescence. That's just a fact. Um, um, let's talk about clergy for a minute. Um, just kidding. So that, so that, that, that leads into it. But what people are looking for is this unrealistic expectation. So what they'll settle for is cohabitation. And one of the reasons why cohabitation leads to so much divorce is because there's actually no willful decision of, I will love you. 
It's I do love you, and you kind of drift into marriage because you think it's the next logical step, when in fact you actually haven't had any hard discussions or conversations, and you've not come to a place when you say, I know you through and through, and I will love you. My favorite example that I use every single time uh, of of the way that this looks like uh, in a marriage, and again, I'm, I'm talking about sort of everyday, average marriages. Um, certainly there are marriages uh, where um, this, this can happen. If you have an abusive spouse, um, if you're in a situation that, uh, like that or there's substance abuse um, that is um, putting you in danger, that, that's, that's a whole other story. So you understand I'm talking about sort of your average everyday marriage. And um, a friend of mine who's a priest who has multiple children, decided one day that uh, he had had enough and um, he had five kids and they were all homeschooled. And, uh, but for some reason, his wife was sort of the even keel one in the family, even though she was homeschooling them. And uh, one day, I mean, just all heck broke loose in the house and he lost it. And he was just yelling at his daughters, yelling at his sons. The girls were crying. The dog was barking. The boys were sort of looking at him in horror, thinking, where did this man come from? And he's a mild-mannered guy. And he just simply walked out the door, slammed it, and went to work. And all day long, he thought, how am I going to go home? How am I going to go home? And um, finally, he stayed at work as long as he possibly could. And he had rehearsed his apology. Wife, children, dog. (laughs) I'm sorry. I really, I really blew it. So there was contrition. He felt awful about it. And uh, he sat in the car. He said a quick prayer. Lord, give me the strength uh, to to do this. Um, And I, you know, which we've all played. Just Lord, work everything out. And he walked through the front door where he was greeted by his wife and his five children. And they led him into the living room. They took off his shoes and socks and washed his feet. And he began to weep uncontrollably. And uh, because that's it. Right? That's the image. Here's a guy. I mean, he would have deserved it if his wife had let loose with both barrels when he walked in the door and said, you are a bad husband. You're the worst. You made our children cry. You kicked the dog. They don't want anything to do with you. Like, I hope you like the couch. Um, that, that, would have been, that would have been a That's exactly what he deserved. And yet that's not what he got. What he got was grace and forgiveness. And do you think that my friend sat there as his feet were being washed and thought, got away with that one? No. No. In fact, it increased the feeling of just being crushed over what he had done to his family and yet overwhelmed by the love uh, that his family had for him in the midst of his unloveliness. And in fact, what that did, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't enabling to say, hey, I got away with it. I guess I can do this again. But it actually made him love more. The gaze of love in his unloveliness actually made him more lovely and loving uh, to his family, in spite of the fact that that morning and that afternoon, he was the same man that kicked the dog and yelled at the kids and yelled at his wife. And yet, uh, in that, that's, that's the model that the world needs to see. What the world needs to see are broken people loving one another in the midst of their brokenness and saying, we're doing this because this is how Jesus loves you. This is how Jesus loves the world. And it's not about happiness primarily. It's not about I do, but it's about I will. 
which is how Jesus loves us. I will love you no matter what. I will love you. Now, even regardless of what happens in your marriage, statistically speaking, divorce happens a lot. And even in the midst of the divorce, Jesus doesn't love you any less as you go through that road. Right? If you can't earn God's grace and favor, you can't unearn it. It's yours, secured by his death on the cross. And so uh, that's what I think of when I listen to NPR on the way home. And, uh, and hear uh, the lady with two children say, marriage is a big commitment. Uh, it is a big uh, commitment, uh, but we love because Christ loved us first. That's all I have. Anybody? Questions, comments, concerns? At the beginning, describe the uh, couple who comes in and they live together and they lie. Not that you'd ever mm-hmm. condone lying, but my reaction was, uh, isn't that maybe healthier? Because at least they know somewhere inside that it's wrong versus just, oh, yeah, we both. Uh, yes, every, nobody, I mean, and I don't know if that's, I don't think that it's just geographic because in Beaufort we had a lot of destination weddings and nobody ever felt comfortable telling me that they lived together. So even in their heart of hearts, they know that something's wrong. And normally they'd come up with, well, you know, it just seemed more convenient for us to, you know, kind of, you know, get all of our bills under one roof and we're going to move anyway. And it's just for, you know, they'd say it's only for a little bit. And then I find out it's been like two years. Uh, but, you know, it's a long run up. So, um, yeah, no one ever, ever, yeah, no one ever felt comfortable telling me that. So in that way, I mean, that's a, that's a tough place for a minister to be in because what do you say? Not going to do, I mean, good, you're getting married. Like, that's what we want, right? That's what we want to happen. And um, so, I, I, I mean, the standard is set high, but you have to have grace with people like that um, who sometimes are, are told by their parents that that's what they ought to do. That's happening a lot. I think that you should, you should do this before you get married. So maybe I should get parents in on one session. Like, just don't say anything. Yeah. yeah, for people who cohabitate before they get married. Yeah, yeah it's kind of what we hire with Christians. No, but that's another thing. I mean, everyone thinks. I mean, at some level, Christian marriage is different, as I've just spent the last half hour, forty minutes talking about. It is different. But the same things that non-Christian couples struggle with are the same thing that Christian couples struggle with. Like it's not, I mean, again, there's this idea, oh, you're a Christian couple, and if you have a bad child, well, all you all do is pray about it, and it's fine. Or if you have, you know, money problems, you know, it's the the same issues, and certainly how you deal with them are different. Um, But I have a feeling that, um, that if I were to tape record married couples fighting, the fights would sound and I wouldn't be able to parse out, the, unless, you know, maybe, like I know the Limehouses, uh, when Frank gets mad, he yells, the Lord be with you. Yeah. Yeah. So then you, I mean, that might be different. So if, if Frank ever says the Lord be with you, it means he doesn't like you. I'm just kidding, because he does it to everybody. It's very disconcerting when he says it, doesn't it? Because you don't know, oh, and with thy spirit, you don't know what to say. <laughs> How do you turn this thing around from 70 or 80 percent because people or society seems to accept it? Mm -hmm. So 
you know, and we're not supposed to be judgmental of these people, mm -hmm. but we accept them as people. But I, I, I don't know how you turn it around. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so that there is that they know that that's not the way to go. Right. The people that are cohabitating. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the whole purpose of premarital counseling, if if a priest is worth his weight and salt, is that is that it's not to judge compatibility. If a couple shows up in your office and they say, hey, we're engaged to be married. Well, they've already made the decision to get married. And so it's our job to say, I'm going to get you ready for marriage, and I'm going to try to find the bruises and push on them so that you're aware going into it. Because most people, including me, were very naive headed into marriage. They had a kind of an inflated view of what it would be and how things would work. And the reality of the situation is you're a mess, you marry a mess, and you probably have little messes down the road. And... That that's so and and so I I used to get a lot of heat and Buford when people would say, well, gosh, it's you. They said you sound almost negative when you talk about. It. And I said it's not negative. I think that the Christians need to be more realistic about what marriage is about, and and it's okay to say marriage is hard. It is joyful. It is wonderful. It's the greatest thing, but it's is not easy. And I think, too, is that a lot of couples that when they get into trouble um, with Christian friends, they, you know, they're afraid to tell their Christian friends, I'm struggling. Like, I'm having a really hard time in my marriage because they're afraid of the other Christians judging them and saying, well, if you're a Christian, it ought to be better than this and things like that. And I tell every couple that comes through, I said, look, I don't care how small an issue you think it is, go see somebody. Go see a therapist. Go see a minister. Go see a psychiatrist. Go see a counselor and talk it out and sort it out. Seek out a mature, and I try to do this too, to try to introduce them to an older married Christian couple and say, these are the people that I want you to, to talk to and, and to give you an you know, sort of the Billy and Ruth uh, uh, Bell Grahams of the world who can sort of say, this is, this is, what, it's, this is what it's like and this is what it's, what it's about. So I think that part of it is managing expectations. But the other part of it, too, is like nothing is new under the sun. I mean, I mean we're actually kind of coming first, uh, you know, full circle back to what the world was like in the first century Roman Empire, where like marriage became completely optional. And especially sex was completely divorced from marriage, and it became more recreation. And so that's 2,000 years ago. But now, I mean, but that's because that... The human heart wants that, but there's still a part of the human heart that understands that it's supposed to work in a certain way, right? There, there's an order to things, and the way that God created them is the best way. And so it's strange because on the one hand, they long for a relationship and a marriage like that, and yet they set themselves up for failure. And I think, though, that, that the witness of the Christian is not to say, just stop it. You know, kind of like the Bob Newharts get a couple of years ago when the person came into the psychologist's office and he said, just stop it. Whatever it is you're doing, just stop. But, um, but I think that it is, um, it's, it's the reality of the world in which we live in. And any witness, I mean, what I try to tell couples is that if this is the way that you want to be loved, the way that I just talked about Jesus loving you, you have to turn your life over to him. You've got to let go, and you've got to give up. And if you want to be the husband and wife that you've always longed to be, Jesus has to be the absolute center of that. And then let God do the work. I, I, there's no way that I can make any other marriage work. Right? I can't do that. So I, I need to let 
let God do that. Show of hand of all the sinners in the room. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. And in the midst of, of this unruly and broken world, and indeed our unruly and broken hearts, Lord, that you would come into those places that are broken down and where we do struggle and where we do need you to come in and save us and transform us. Uh, we pray uh, for those of us who are married here that our lives and our marriages would indeed reflect your grace and love uh, toward uh, the sinner. For those of us uh, who are single, Lord, um, we pray that you would use uh, those of us uh, to love the world in the way uh, that you uh, would love us, loving that which is uh, unlovely. And Lord, that you give us grace with the people that we're closest to in our lives, friends, family, uh, loved ones. Uh, to love as, as you have loved and thereby draw all men and women unto you so that they might know and serve you as Lord. Amen.